What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of genre, mathematics, and Lloyd Alexander. First, we'll speak with author Jennifer Nielsen about how she writes different genres. Then we'll talk with mathematics professor Eula Monroe about the language of mathematics. Our last guest will be librarian and teacher Heather Price, and we'll talk about one of our favorite authors. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have a book review for The Blackthorn Key, and we'll hear about the New Year's resolutions of some college students. But before all that, let's take a peek into my world. As regular listeners of Rachel's World may already know, I have fond memories of reading the Nancy Drew series when I was a girl. Nancy's adventurous and daring spirit and the formulaic progression of the plots were just perfect for my personal reading needs. Classic children's mysteries with spunky heroines like Nancy Drew, Trixie Belden, the Boxcar Children, and the famous five all have staying power even today. But modern girls don't have to just enjoy these classic characters. They also have new choices to choose from. Let me share a couple of my favorites with you today. First, one of my favorites is Enola Holmes, the protagonist of a series of novels by Nancy Springer. Since she was born in 1874, Enola Holmes may not be considered truly modern, but her modern sensibilities and zeal will have great appeal for any mystery lover. Enola is the much younger sister of the infamous Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes, so there are many connections here to classic mystery novels that are very intriguing. Each book in the series is fun and fast, so these short novels will find broad appeal with even struggling or reluctant readers. While Enola counts Sherlock Holmes' family, super sleuth Ingrid Levin Hill, another of my favorite characters, counts him as her true hero. Peter Abraham's Echo Falls mysteries are set in Ingrid's hometown, a place that is full of secrets, and it's just the right place for this spunky little detective to ply her trade. Ingrid is also an actress, so these books have great connections to other works of literature. Imaginative and fun, this series is sure to captivate a wide range of readers. And last but not least, many adults will find the name Alexander McCall Smith familiar, as he is the author of the popular Number One Ladies Detective Agency series. But Smith also authors a charming set of mysteries for younger readers, featuring nine-year-old detective Harriet Bean. Suspense, adventure, fantasy, and humor all combine in these fun stories, which will appeal to emerging readers who are ready for chapter-length books. So here at Rachel's World, we are glad to say that modern girls are sure to find a mystery that is just right for them to read. All they have to do is head on down to their local libraries and check them out. Rachel's World. 
Reading opens up worlds for us and our children. Every book, genre, and author offers a different experience for us. Some authors are famous for writing just one particular genre, and other authors seem to dabble in many. Today, we're in studio with author Jennifer Nielsen, who is one of those dabblers. Welcome, Jennifer. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Um, particularly this year, you uh, published a, a work of fantasy, and then you've also published a work of historical fiction. So tell us a little bit about how do you approach those? Do you, do you approach those genres a little bit differently, or is it pretty much the same for you? Well, I, I think in the end, I mean, it, it, a good story has to be a good story. So structurally, I, I want to craft something that's going to pull a reader in and hold their attention, but, but it is very, very different uh, in a historical world. I'm always very, very aware people actually lived it. And I don't want to insert something in there that somebody who had lived during that time would say, no, that's not, that's not it, because I consider that a betrayal of the actual heroes of that time period. So I'm very aware of if I put it in the book, it had better be factually true, even if I'm inserting a fictional story within there. So um, I, I, I work off of maps and I work off of heavy, heavy amounts of research. With a fantasy world, uh, it, it starts with imagination that that becomes my limit. And after building this world and these characters solely out of my imagination, then I start to put limits on it with fact to say, all right, but if it's a medieval world, there's certain things that have to ring true. And so the fact comes more as an afterword, whereas it's the beginning point for a historical fiction. I, I love that contrast because th there is this sense with a lot or all of your novels, I, I would say, that that there is there is factual truth even in the fantasy. Sure. So I think even in your fantasy worlds, we can identify, you know, some historical time periods, even though it may be like four or five that are included in the same kind of pot. So there definitely is this sense of research and factuality that you have to put in both genres. Uh, the, the level of that is obviously slightly different compared to the two. So particularly with your fantasy novels, how do you do research on that kind of element? Is, there, is it a different kind of research or is it similar to the kind of research that you do for a historical novel? Uh, you know, for a historical novel, it's the whole world concerns me. Everything that might have been true about that world. Uh, in a fantasy, it's specific facts that I'm going to look for. So if I've got a character who's using a sword, I'm going to very specifically research sword fighting and the different kinds of swords and the training you would need or the uh, stances you might take. And so it becomes very specific about those things. So I will absolutely bring research into the to the fantasy world, but it's all on a need-by-need -need basis because I don't have to stick to um, something that actually existed if I've got something creatively that can supplant that uh, that still feels real. So I bring in the research where needed to give it its authenticity um, because it still has to feel like a real place. The evocative nature of place in your novels, I think, is is so amazing. And I, I think that's one of the things you do really well is setting. You you bring the setting to life, whether it's a fantasy novel or a historical novel. You really place us as a reader in this setting. And 
because of that, I, I think I can feel as a reader this research that you've done so so very well. Is is that part of why you do that research is because you truly want to bring that setting alive for your reader? Oh, I, I believe very strongly in the setting is a character because each of us is so affected by our place, right? If, if you live uh, right on the beach, you are going to be a very different person. You're going to live a very different life than somebody who's living in an inner city environment. And you're going to live very differently if you live on a ranch, on a range where your nearest neighbor is 50 miles away. And we are all, each of us so affected in, in character, by our place, that I don't see how you could create a novel without having a very uh, rich sort of world that is built around the story. That is just so insightful because I can truly see that in your books. I, I think your a, a recent your recent novel, um, The Scourge, that, that that has a they're on an island, and so the setting truly in that book is very much a character because it puts limitations on what the characters can do and what opportunities they have, and even kind of drives the character motivation in many ways. Um, your recent novel, Resistance, too, is set in World War. Two in Poland, just you know, it puts those kinds of contexts and structures on it that allows us as a reader to dive into these wonderful stories and then see where the characters are going and and push that through. So I really appreciate that kind of evocative nature of things, but particularly as you're writing kind of two novels at the same time, right? Because you, you like you had two come out this year: one historical fiction, one fantasy. Um, how do you how do you keep it all straight? Oh gosh, <laughs> that, that, I, that's a very you know kind of weird question. But you know it 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 feels like it would get all jumbled up in my mind. So so how do you keep it straight? Well, and it's not even it's it's not even two novels. So right now I'm I'm plotting and outlining one, and I'm writing the first draft on one, and then I'm uh, doing edits for a totally different novel. And then I'm just nursing other ideas in my head that are waiting to come. And so it's multiple things. But in my opinion, I don't think you would get confused by one novel versus another any more than you would get confused by one friend versus another. Uh, You know, you don't, if you're with one friend, you're not like, wait a minute, who am I with right now? You're very clear on that. I know my characters. I know each world. They're very separate places. So when I'm in one world, I'm just there. And then when I move to another, I'm just there. So where are you now? <laughs> Let, let's talk about a little bit about what's coming up. And you, you mentioned all these ones that are in development and all of those types of things. So, so wh- where are you going? What, what's the future from Jennifer Nielsen for us? <laughs> all right. So uh, early in 2019, I will release the second book of a YA fantasy series, The Traitor's Game. Book two will come out of that. Um, In the fall of 2019, I'm going to do my third historical book uh, that will be called The Book Smuggler, which is based on the true story of um, Lithuanian citizens who were smuggling books into their country to save their culture, to save their language, and to save themselves from a Soviet or from a Russian occupation. Uh, And then I'm going to get into a very bizarro uh, paranormal sort of thing about a boy with no memory of who he is, but he has a Sharpie. 
And if he writes on his skin, if it's true about him, it stays on the surface. And if not, it soaks in. Ooh, and, that's exciting. Oh, it's so <laughs> that bizarre. Sounds so, that sounds so cool. <laughs> that one is black ink. And uh, every day he just writes his name, a name on his arm. And he has yet to figure out his name. But he has that Sharpie. And he's got a boggle set that if he shakes it up, the dice will fall occasionally with messages to him. And that is his only resource to try to save his life. So that's that's coming up next. Ooh, okay. I'm very excited about the future of well, those kind of Well, that's going to be things. a fun one. That's going to have an online presence. So there Excellent. will be uh, screenshots in the book of web pages, which will mean that young reader can then get online and delve deeper into the conspiracy. That is so interesting. And something unique Very for different. you for you Very so how are you approaching that how are you taking that online world and seeing the context kind of move between those two formats oh it's going to be awesome because before i even build the book i've got to build the whole conspiracy and so it's going to be you know here's a little video clip that looks like it was shot undercover and uh, here's some you know drawings and it's going to be very multimedia-esque um, and and then tie in with this book series and this world that this boy is caught up in that he doesn't even know about and in that way the reader will have more information than the main characters Ooh, okay that that is very intriguing and I'm looking forward to Thank that you that's fabulous so what are maybe some of those ideas that are just percolating I know we won't we won't take them as a hundred percent we won't you know we will totally understand they're percolating but you know what are, what are some of those potential ideas you know I I would really love to do a historical that's based in uh, World War one. Um, with the dazzle ships or with the uh, tunnels that run beneath France, there were little cities that were built, and uh, and I would love to do something with that. There is also um, an extremely well-known popular song that if I I would love to do an origination story of what that song is all about. That is. If I can pull it off, it will be so weird and so amazing. But uh, I've still got to build that whole world. That's like what I do at 3 a.m. when I can't sleep is build (laughs) that world. (laughs) Well, whatever comes, I am in anticipation, with great anticipation, looking forward to it. Because you do. You build such wonderful structural worlds that allow us to to delve into so many wonderful imaginations and real things and and real history as well as fantastical worlds that are just there for the reader to grow and develop with. So thank you for all you do, Jennifer. I appreciate it. Keep that. it up. Keep it up. I, I'm I for one am looking forward to it. Well, you know, I'm looking forward to it too. It keeps it keeps it challenging and fresh, which means it's it's an amazing uh, career to have. Good. Well we will be looking for many years to come. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer Nielsen is the author of many books in many different genres. Next, we will have a book review by Rachel Olson for the novel The Blackthorn Key by Kevin Sands. Let's take a listen. Today, I wanted to introduce you to an amazing novel titled The Blackthorn Key by Kevin Sands. As a child, I always struggled trying to find the right kind of book to read, one that both piqued my interests, had relatable characters, and took me on an adventure away from my home in Seattle. I would randomly pick books based on their covers, and if I happened to like the author, I would try to read everything they had written. The Blackthorn Key was a book I probably never would have read if I had stuck to my favorite genre, which is realistic fiction, and my preference for reading about female protagonists, but I'm sure glad I did read this one. 
This enthralling novel had me feeling curious, brave, scared, and perplexed at different times. This Newbery Honor winner follows the story of an orphan named Christopher Rowe in London back in 1665, who is taken in as an apprentice by the apothecary named Master Benedict. But when an elusive cult begins murdering the apothecaries, Christopher must put his brains together with his partner in crime, Tom, to stop the cult before they get what they want, an ancient recipe with dangerous power. This would be an enticing read for any young girl or boy between the ages of around 10 to 14 who love to solve riddles, codes, and dream of mixing medicines and potions. Strong themes of friendship, loyalty, and doing what's right are weaved beautifully into this novel. I especially loved some of the verbiage that Kevin Sands used to describe this story. In one scene, Christopher was looking for a secret passageway, and the author wrote, The pillars looked like large gray slabs stuck together with mortar. I ran my hands along them. They remained large gray slabs stuck together with mortar. (laughs) This part and many others made me laugh because as readers, we assumed he would find a secret brick like in Harry Potter or that there would be a symbol indented on the wall. But instead, it was just a wall. (laughs) This story is very humorous. And another quote I thought was very well worded says, On the other hand, where was elsewhere, which had to be better than here. Again, while Christopher is running to and fro, Kevin Sands uses language that is both fun and playful and appeals to all ages. This story is told through the eyes of Christopher, who is 14, and although Kevin Sands has written a little over 350 pages, he will leave you wanting to see what happens next. Kevin Sands is a great author and is comparable to many who include Karen Foxley of A Most Magical Girl, Jessica Lawson of Nooks and Crannies, and Matthew J. Kirby of The Clockwork Three. This would be an amazing book to use in the classroom to teach how to investigate and look at things from different perspectives. Many times, things are not very obvious to both Christopher and Tom as they spend lots of time trying to figure out what things mean. This may also be a great fit for children who have had many homes growing up and are trying to figure out where they belong. Um, Near the middle of the story, Christopher must fight to retain the apothecary shop, which he really feels is his real first home. In addition, I love Kevin Sand's style and voice in this book, which could be a great example to students in their own writing in the upper grades, maybe fifth or sixth grade. Um, This book made me feel that I was living like a character in the movie National Treasure from 2004, always running from clue to clue and avoiding those pesky bad guys lurking just around the corner, which was a blast. I would highly recommend this book to any student who wants to take off on an adventure around the streets of London trying to solve a mystery. the wonderful things about literacy is the fact that we're able to make connections between disciplines. We're in studio today talking with Dr. Eula Monroe, who is a professor of mathematics education at Brigham Young University. We're so excited to talk to you today a little bit more about your expertise in math and particularly about connecting children with math. So to start out, define for us a little bit about What is the language of mathematics? Well, first, thinking about language, uh, people would differ with me. Some linguists would. And perhaps I would differ with myself if I were a linguist. But uh, mathematics is, is perhaps not to linguist a total language. But it has so many of the aspects of a total language for children that for all practical purposes, it is a second or third language for them to learn. And it definitely is not a home language, although there are many mathematical words that are picked up in the home 
uh, like over and under and about, spatial words, and they're also counting numbers. But really, the intense language that you learn to think with in mathematics as you grow and develop in mathematics is is not something that is a, an everyday language. So from a linguist perspective, I could talk with a linguist about that, and uh, I have. But for now, we will call mathematical mathematics a language, and we'll talk about four things that we do with language. We speak it. We listen to it. Those are two of the easier things, although if you've ever been in a mathematical lecture, sometimes the listening is not so easy. And until you can listen well, it's kind of hard to speak well. And then we read and write it. And that is so... Those four aspects of language are so important in the mathematics classroom, particularly since uh, about, uh, oh, perhaps for the last 30 years, uh, uh the whole em- emphasis on making mathematics accessible to everyone, helping every child, the whole issue of equity, helping every child learn mathematics and to be able to speak it, listen to it, read it, and write it. Of course, speaking and listening, the, the earlier aspects of discourse, although accompanied by the other, mathematical discourse is so emphasized in the in the mathematics classroom today. It's not just filling out sheets of worksheets. Hopefully, not that anymore, anywhere. And uh, But you talk about language and uh, talk about the language of mathematics using the language of mathematics. You talk about mathematical ideas using the language of mathematics. You know, I really love that conception because I think it helps us see mathematics in a new way because particularly with – a child who's struggling, if we look at it really as them trying to learn like a foreign language, mm-hmm. that opens up a sense, particularly for us as concerned adults, to say, yeah, this might be really challenging. And there's lots of words and lots of conceptions, particularly as you get into upper division mathematics, that makes it really difficult. So I think this might have opened the minds to mm-hmm. some of our listeners today about how important understanding that kind of concept is. So how do you think understanding this, understanding that there is, a, it's, mathematics has its own language, mm-hmm. how do you think that helps us as adults to connect with our children? If we just look at one particular aspect of language, the vocabulary, which I've studied more than any other area in my work, If we just look at that and think about words representing thoughts, and and I like to think of it uh, as I think about it, a word, some words are easy to learn and hard to do, like no for a child. (laughs) Good example. Good example. (laughs) But uh, when you take a mathematical concept and represent it with a word like multiplicative inverse or reciprocal, or even add-end and sum for young children, when you're talking about, of course, uh, the add-ends that you put together in a sense or that are combined to come up with an answer or, uh, or sum, or in that sense a total as well, those words are, are, are really not easy to learn. And parents need to understand that uh, that parents, and we as teachers too, need to understand that basic 
interpersonal language is a lot easier to learn because it's street language. You use it every day. It's home language. But the cognitive uh, academic language that we use is much slower to learn. And what really got me started, I guess, on this journey was happened a long time ago. I taught mathematics and language to children, uh, mathematics, and I taught everything to sixth graders and fifth graders and fourth graders, as classroom teachers do, for a long, long time, about uh, uh, 20 years before I went full-time into teacher education. And that background, as well as my doctorate with looking at both literacy and mathematics, and then coming across a few years later uh, a quote from Vicki Shell, uh, which really brought together some things for me and impacted me. She said in a Reading Teacher article in 1984, I know it was 82, that research indicates that math is the most difficult content area material to read with more concepts per word, per sentence, and per paragraph than any other area. So it definitely is cognitively laden with concepts. So parents need to know that. I love that quote. That's a wonderful quote because it really is this sense of cognitive understanding Mm -hmm. and delving into it and the complexity of that. I love that sense that you were speaking to earlier that some of these concepts are really difficult and even some that we might not consider mathematical concepts like those kind of spatial things you were mentioning Mm -hmm. earlier is a really interesting way to say, you know, even these spatial things that can be really difficult. So how can we maybe go about demystifying this? Or are there some specific things we can do as as parents to help students and children develop these cognitive things, particularly when they aren't homebound things or when they are just in this academic sphere? Well, I think there's some general things that we can do even without thinking about mathematics in particular as the language itself. One is help your children learn to talk and help them learn to talk precisely about concepts. For instance, many parents will call a rhombus a diamond, and that can be confusing to children. If you just simply call it a rhombus, if you know that term, fine. Talk about what that means. But if you don't know that term, that's fine too. Talk about diamond, about the shape of it. Talk about the words in your everyday language. Have children to express their ideas clearly. Have them to be able to explain why they are thinking what they're thinking when they give you an answer. All those sorts of things about engaging children in discourse that emphasizes their learning to think about what they're thinking. Now, we know metacognition is, uh, many people thought it developed later than it does, than we now believe, but we know that children can think about their thinking at a fairly early level. And have them explain why they're thinking what they're thinking. That helps in that precision of language and being able to come up with uh, being able to communicate their concepts. Mm-hmm. I really like that for, for two reasons. This precision of language helps develop this language of mathematics and get them ready for that. But then I think the other thing that is kind of the language of mathematics that may be more abstract is this sense of problem solving. Mm-hmm. That sense of problem solving and cognitive awareness and thinking through a pattern is really what mathematics is all about. And it's kind of the essence of the language of mathematics. So that sense that we can talk with our children and have them think through that problem solving builds that pattern of thinking that 
will obviously be helpful in mathematics later. Well, absolutely. If it were not for problem-solving, mathematics would probably have very little uh, reason for existence. But because problem-solving we encounter daily and every day, oh, every day in many, many ways, and we certainly want to be able to solve problems mathematically, then the essence of mathematics for many people, including myself, is problem-solving. Now, with very young children, and there's been a lot of research done in this area, particularly with children K through 3 or 4, about the... uh, Uh, about the centrality of word problems with children in helping them to learn the kinds of patterns of mathematical thinking that will help them, even though they may not have technical language in them, or they may have, uh, most likely not. But when they're working together to share things equally, uh, I have a a cookie. Uh, There are two of us. Is there any way we both could get equal parts, you know, uh, and have the children work on things like that, even talk about that language in the home? By the way, equal is one of the hardest things to learn. (laughs) (laughs) No (laughs) one equal. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, in the sense of uh, when you get, when you, uh, but school convolutes that because later on children begin to think that, one plus two equals three. Well, uh, well, that equal sign means give an answer. Well, it doesn't really mean give an answer because one plus blank equals three. Then the answer does not follow the equal sign. So I think sometimes we, we convolute the problem children have with things because very young children have a very well-developed sense of justice. And uh, they know equal when it happens. <laughs> that is really wonderful because I think this sense of this language of math, even though it isn't really part of our common day language, mm-hmm. in some ways it really is. Oh, it is. It's grounded in that in some ways. But there are words that are not as well. Mm-hmm. So particularly for those of us that may be a little bit less strong in those truly mathematical words or in the concepts that are more specific, because I certainly would only call a diamond a diamond. Um, uh-huh. in, how can we go about as adults maybe helping ourselves become a little more comfortable with this language that is the world of math? Well, one, one thing that I would do if I believe if I were a parent in that position today is that uh, I know the materials that children bring home are laden nowadays with the language of mathematics. And I would make it a point to study that carefully, and perhaps with the use of a good dictionary. I know it's better to learn vocabulary in the context of uh, thinking through it with other people in a social environment where uh, a more capable other is there to help you. In other words, you reasoning together on the concept where somebody knows something and somebody else knows something else, and you begin to develop the idea of what that means together. But there's somebody to kind of guide that in some ways. But if you don't have those opportunities for that available, uh, then... uh, Uh, a good mathematics dictionary for children can help you. But don't look at just one that explains the how. You want one that explains more the why the language is there because children can memorize add in plus add in equals sum, but if they have no idea what that means and how to be flexible with that understanding, then it's just a bunch of words that, uh, like memorizing, uh, hmm, 
uh, silly, what do we, uh, supervised, doesn't mean any more than that. It's kind of fun at the time, but what do you do with it? Yeah, and I love that sense of application. So as we wind up today, how would you suggest parents help their students with these applications, especially if they bring home homework and these types of things? What role do you think parents should play in helping their students approach it from that perspective? Well, I have some very strong feelings about homework. I think homework is helpful. Homework is even necessary. Not lots of homework, but selected homework from the teacher. But this is a word of advice to the teacher. Please do not send things home with the children that they have are not either one, independent in or reasonably independent in so that parents do not have to teach it from scratch and so that the children cannot teach the teach the parents the language. If children are insecure in the language of mathematics and their parents are trying to learn it as it's being taught today, then there's then parents are not going to be able to communicate with the concept and help with the concept, which they may already know but not the label for it. If their children uh, are not already somewhat versed in it, or unless it's an exploration. For instance, if we were going into uh, uh, measurement the metric system tomorrow, children might not be well familiar with grams, but I might ask them to look in the cabinets at home and find all the things that they could find labeled with grams so that they get a sense of it's there, it's there, and if we were doing that. But usually homework should be uh, whatever the children are already fairly secure in, but they just need some additional practice with uh, retaining the concept and with uh, communicating it. I love that recommendation, and I think that that's a good recommendation for teachers directly, but also for parents, Mm -hmm. that if they are trying to speak with their teachers or Mm -hmm. develop a relationship there and understanding that they can say, you know, maybe this is how I understand it, and start start that conversation with the teachers themselves. And also to parents, there's a wonderful tradition in some areas called family math, Uh, came out of Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley in uh, in the 80s, and it's still as good or even better today than it used to be. But there are also schools that either do family math or they do parent nights with mathematics. But be sure to communicate with your child's teacher. Your teacher will want to know what you and the child are having difficulty with because they don't want you to be home struggling and saying, I hate this mathematics because I don't understand it. Or you might not be saying that, but you may be communicating it with your body language, which is probably just as powerful to a child. What a wonderful note to end on. I think that that's an important thing that we can help communicate all better in the language of math and be able to open the world not only to ourselves as adults, but to our children as well. Thank you so much, Eula, for your time today. Thank you. Eula Monroe is a professor of mathematics education here at BYU. Next, we sent our technical advisor, Braden Flint, around BYU to ask some students about books, reading, and New Year's resolutions. All right, so how many books did you read in 2018, and what was your favorite? Uh, so I think I read around, like, 10 books-ish. Um, favorites, plural, would probably include um, from the series of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. I'm trying to work through those. Those are really long, but they're really good at the same time. 
Um, I also read Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. Uh, a really, like, painful read, but, like, also, like, a really good one. Um, I also read Ready Player One. The book is way better than the movie, as per usual. Um, also, Simon and the Hopeless versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. That was a good one. Okay. I've probably read around 25, 30 books. My favorite, so for school, I read Great by Angela Duckworth. And then I read to my kids, and we read Layman's Out Loud this year, which took forever, but it was really fun. All right, so I probably read 15 to 20, um, not including school books, thank goodness. And mostly I just read cheesy chick flicks from the library. Um, but one of my favorites this summer was Me Before You by Jojo Myers and that series. There's three of them, they were just really good. So I actually know the exact number because I use an app called Goodreads. So I have read 17 books this year, mostly over the summer. And I have to say my favorite was going back to my old favorites. I reread the Harry Potter series. I think I read like five books this year. Most of them were textbooks though, so those weren't my favorite. But I did listen to an audiobook. And it was Yes Please by Amy Poehler. I think that was my favorite one. Unfortunately, I probably only read two books, if you count like parts of textbooks. That can be cumulative, right? Um, but I read uh, The Help for fun over the summer, and I really loved it. I don't know, I go on really long reading stints during the summer. I probably read over 50 this year. Um, my favorite book is The Hot Zone by Richard Creston, and I read it like three or four times a year, so that one. Um, I think, including textbooks, about five, five books, and my favorite one is called Designing Your Life by B. Burnett. What are your reading resolutions for 2019? Uh, I would say that in 2018, I kind of set a goal to read more classics of books and stuff, things that I've you know, heard about all growing up and never really read them or pretended to read them when I was in high school or something like that. Uh, so I've been trying to read through more of the classics. Uh, this year I read 1984. That was one of the books I read through. I'm, I'm, I think next on the list would be like To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, but I need to work through more of those classic books. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, to actually read the books for book club that I attend and finish grad school. So a lot of reading for that. Read even more cheesy chick flicks when I'm not in school and then read more nonfiction books that really tell a good story that I need in my life. <laughs> well, it's hard to find time to read during the school year, but it'd be nice if I could read more than I did last year, so I'd say at least 20. I've gotten really into nonfiction recently. I don't know if it's because I'm a student, but I heard about this book, Automating Humanity by Joe Toscano, and I'm really interested in reading it. So, that's at least one leisure book for 2019 that I want to read, besides textbooks. Uh, after I graduate, I can actually catch up on all the books I have missed while I've been in school. I have a whole bunch of nonfiction books at home that I should probably read that I've never read, so that. Well, I'd like to read a little bit more for fun, because I have a little bit more free time than I admit public, so maybe read something fictional. 
Um, so I'll be graduating, so hopefully I'll have more time. And so just uh, like keep reading for fun. It's always fun to find new novels to read and people to share them with. Today, I have librarian and teacher Heather Price in the studio with me to talk about one of our favorite authors. Welcome, Heather. I'm so glad to be here. Let's chat today and share our geeky love for one of our favorite <laughs> authors, Lloyd Alexander. So uh. tell us, for, from your perspective, for somebody who may not know the name Lloyd Alexander, what would you tell them about Lloyd Alexander? Who is he? Uh, for me, he's kind of the father of modern fantasy for young adults in America. I mean, my earliest interaction with him was my sixth grade teacher who read us the book of three, complete with the funny voices for Gurgi. And and I, I don't remember a lot about sixth grade, but I remember looking forward to after lunch every day, hearing this amazing, you know, fantasy adventure. And uh, yeah, I think he just kind of set the stage for a lot of the uh, the fantasy, the huge resurgence of fantasy we've seen lately especially i saw an interview with shannon hale where she kind of refers to him as the grandfather of modern fantasy and i love that analogy where you know even students now who might not be familiar with his works personally are reading authors who were influenced by him and so um, i try as much as possible to introduce students to him because i i just think his books are delightful and i like them to see kind of where things began and kind of see that evolution to where they are now I think that's really important to note that kind of grandfather nature of mm -hmm. him, because you were right. A lot of the fantasy authors that are working today are pay homage to mm -hmm. him as kind of their influence. We we interviewed Julie Berry, whose newest book, mm. the, uh, the Emperor's Ostrich, mm -hmm. is very much dedicated to him, oh. which is lovely. And mm -hmm. so I think that there is this kind of foundation that he laid. Oh, yeah, definitely. His main foundation was with his most famous series, the Pridane mm -hmm. Chronicles. Um, and that's the one that won the Newbery Award and all of that type of thing. So tell us a little bit about the Pridane Chronicles. What what do you think of those books? Uh, you you know, mentioned I've, one already. <laughs> I've actually yeah. been rereading the Book of Three just this week since I knew we were going to be talking about him today. And I'm just amazed. It almost reminded me of when I reread Charlotte's Web, uh, that there's there doesn't seem to be a phrase in there that doesn't absolutely need to be there. Like he's just a master of prose. And I just love how it's so, so sparse, but so dense in a way. Um, I love his characters. I mean, you know, you talk about a spunky female sidekick. I think we all want to be that, that princess that <laughs> yeah. demands to carry the sword and doesn't want to ride the horse because she can walk very well by herself. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, just, I just love the characters, you know, that that I still remembered those characters from when I was a sixth grader. Um, you know, that was a long time ago. And I've read a lot of books since then, but that those characters have that staying power. Yeah, he, he writes so vividly. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate how he does that because it is stuff that stays with you. And, you know, there are even lines and moments oh, yeah. in Pridane that have stayed with me years and years and years after reading them, because it is that vivid, vivid writing. He's also so great at humor. That's, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's one of the things I love about Lloyd Alexander, because some of his stuff is pretty intense, mm -hmm. right? And Pridane has some pretty intense themes that it's going on about. It's, you know, a grand fight of good against evil. And there, there it can get a little heavy at times, particularly the later books, Tarn mm -hmm. Wanderer and The High King. It can get a little dense. 
but at the same time, there's such beautiful humor mm-hmm. that it just provides that lovely outlet to make it balanced with, you know, the the intense themes as well as the humorous parts. Yeah. Well, and, and that we can, you know, communicate with these characters on such a personal level that we all feel unworthy. You know, Taryn's always saying, you know, I'm, I'm just an assistant pig keeper. <laughs> you know, I want to be this great hero. I think we all have those aspirations. We want to be the big hero. And and he continually plays with our concept of what a hero is. You know, there's a great line. I, I can't quite remember how he phrases it when he's like, well, how can he be a hero? He's bald. And, <laughs> you know, there's this, you know, another great line about, well, I didn't think heroes were measured by the length of their hair, you know, but just this playing with the idea that we're all kind of a hero inside. We're just looking to discover it. And I think that's a theme we definitely see carrying on even to modern fantasy today. You know, that that character that we all can relate to because we all feel kind of unworthy of what's put before us in a way. I, I think that's so true. He really addresses those kind of fundamental things that we have as human beings that make us feel not quite right and mm-hmm. we're, that we're trying to discover and grow. And he captures that so well in all of his books. Mm-hmm. And I know that's one of the things we geek out over Pride Day because <laughs> that's important. Of course, yes. But in all honesty, I think between the two of us, our more favorite books by Alexander yes. are the his Vesper Holly series. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I love Vesper Holly. In fact, um, I took a, a graduate uh, children's literature course from uh, Dr. Jim Jacobs here on BYU campus. And you can imagine our surprise when he said, you know, you need to choose a book by Lloyd Alexander because we're going to call him up and talk to him. And we all just kind of went, oh, what? <laughs> um, and I had, since I had already uh, read Book of Three, I thought, well, I'll, I'll try something different. And being a huge action adventure romance fan, I thought, well, I'll try the Vesper Holly Chronicles. And I just love those books. You know, we have this teenage Indiana Jones girl um, narrated by her guardian, Brinny. Um, who she's always tricking into going on adventures and he's just such a fun narrator. And so when we got to call Lloyd Alexander, which was just so surreal, um, I got to ask him and I know I, um, when I brought it up, he said, Oh, my dear Vesper. Like it was like, I was mentioning an old friend of his and, uh, um, I asked him specifically about, um, that narrator choice and he's a huge Sherlock Holmes fan and said, you know, I I love that idea of having kind of a Watson narrator. So, and that's kind of rare in a young adult novel to have an adult as the narrator, but it just adds so much humor. I mean, poor Brenny is always getting into trouble and begging to be left behind while the younger folks keep adventuring. And um, yeah, I just, I just love those books. They're just so fun. In fact, I read the last one, uh, The Xanadu Adventure recently. Um, I didn't want the series to be done. So I've been putting off reading that last one and I finally read it and I have to say it was just as just as great as all of the other ones, but it was fun talking to him about her and and just his love for that character and how it was kind of a a fun um I hate to say diversion, but he just finished Westmark he said and he's um he said he was so emotionally exhausted after writing that series that he just wanted to kind of have a fun adventure and and that this was kind of his way of doing that and yeah, we we both geek out over Vesper Holly. <laughs> yeah, and that that makes a lot of sense because if you don't know Westmark, it's it's a treatise on war. Mm. I mean, and it's a very, I think it's his darkest mm-hmm. book and a very intense treatise on you know the perils of war. And it Vesper Holly is such a fun light adventure that it's kind of very much indistinct to that. But mm-hmm. I love Vesper Holly, and I tell all my students in the, my children's literature classes that if you want the best one paragraph character description in all of literature, you just have to read the first 
statement, the first paragraph of the first Vesper Holly book, because it just it describes her so perfectly. <laughs> and it's just there's some humor and there's some fun. And mm-hmm. it just it's just like, you know, this character from word one. Such unique and endearing character. Oh, I love it. Now I want to rewrite, reread the entire series since I, I just read that one. <laughs> yeah. So we need to go back. And yes. If you haven't read those. In fact, I often tell my students, you know, some people have a hard time with Lloyd Alexander. Mm-hmm. And I totally get that because a lot of his stuff is really high fantasy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when they say, I don't like fantasy... They mean high fantasy. Right, right. exactly. They, they mean mm-hmm. that kind of really dense, you know, good world versus building. evil, yeah. world building kind of fantasy. And so they don't like, you know, Pride and Chronicles as much. Mm-hmm. But I say, you know, if you want to like Lloyd Alexander, go to Vesper. Yeah, go, to, go on an adventure with Vesper <laughs> yeah. and, and she will change fine. your mind. You should change your mind. And then you might want to read the Pride and Chronicles because you'll just, you'll fall in love with Lloyd Alexander and... And yeah, because all those what? same things are in there. You know, the humor, the vulnerable main character that we all want to be. Uh, yeah, just uh, brilliant settings. Um, some of them are set in just amazing places. And yeah, yeah, yeah that that is definitely one of my all time favorites. Uh, another one of my all time favorites of Alexander's is um, the marvelous misadventures of Sebastian, mm. which to me is like Lloyd Alexander on a page. If mm-hmm. you if you want to know. Lloyd Alexander, that's the book you should read. I think it. I think that's the one that pays the most homage to to him and mm-hmm. who he was as a person, mm. um, and just his loves of music and story and cats. Yeah, there's cats, always, there's cats, always cats. Always cats in the books. <laughs> always cats. That was an important part of Lloyd Alexander's. Well, and I love the cats because after talking with him, you really feel like when you read one of his books, you're sitting there chatting with him because what you read on the page is how he was um, when you're, you know, speaking with him. I, I'll never remember, i never forget the the writing advice he gave me during that conversation and just some of the delightful stories he told us. Because, um, yeah, what you saw was what you, what you got with him. Yeah. I love that honesty because mm-hmm. I think all writers, that kind of truthful honesty of who you are really has to come out on the page. Definitely. And he is so authentic. You're mm-hmm. right. I mean, I've I've had the pleasure of meeting him too. And it was yeah, he was he wasn't any different in his books than he was in person. Mm-hmm. And that is rare. I mean, yeah. even just in human life, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> People can be so two faced oh, and yeah. Yeah. so different. But he he was what he was, and he wanted you to accept that. I mean, he didn't try to play games or pretend that he was somebody else. And yeah. That that just that sheer honesty really does come out in his books. Yeah, so endearing. So as we close up today, what what is the thing you want people to remember about Lloyd Alexander? Uh, just if you haven't discovered him yet, uh, yeah, pick up one of his books. You will not be disappointed. Just I think. You know, he kind of gets lost with all of the the outpouring of young adult literature there's been lately. But really, we talked about this several weeks ago. He he kind of originated it, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think um, to really appreciate what we have now, you kind of have to go back and see where it started. And that definitely was with Lloyd Alexander. And he's he's a great one. I mean, today we'd classify him as YA, mm-hmm. but he definitely can span age groups. Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. they're particularly for some precocious child readers. <laughs> I think it would be great. Um, definitely middle school, mm-hmm. high school. He's a great connection. Um, you know, Vesper Holly is so fun that, you know, you know, even seven, eight year old. Oh, yeah, I think definitely would find it very, very accessible. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I love about Lloyd Alexander is. He spans the age groups in a way that some authors don't. Yes. And he's 
he's really accessible to to a lot of kids in a lot of different ways. So yeah. run out there, yes. check check it out. Yes, the, enjoy <laughs> enjoy all of the good fun that we we've been geeking out over yes. for years and years. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thanks, Heather. Thank you. Heather Price is a teacher and librarian at Skyridge High School. Now, join me with other librarians from around Utah as we discuss children, books, and life. Today, I'm speaking with Joe Everett and Marissa Bischoff about family history. I'm in studio today with Joe and Marissa from our family history library at BYU. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks. Okay. You have come today with some practical tips, and I am excited to hear them. So what's, what are some of our tips? <laughs> well, I think one of the things is just the dinner table. You know, um, There have been studies that have shown that uh, families that spend time together around the dinner table um, are stronger. And uh, that's a great venue to be able to share family stories. And you can just start it off with, you know, you make a little game out of it. Guess what mom's first pet was or how much money do you think dad made in his first job or just conversation starters that can get the stories flowing. Speaking of dinner time, food itself is a good um, thing that you can use, you know, traditional family recipes uh, that have been passed down, you know, sharing it with the kids and then telling them, uh, you know, the traditions around, you know, having that particular meal and memories that you have from your childhood. Um, I, I think a good tip is to make it about them, your kids, if if that's what you're trying to get into family history. So have them write about an experience with their grandmother or with their grandparents or with someone like that and then upload it and let them know that you're sharing this for posterity and this could be for their own grandkids. To, to read later. They can be involved in recording grandma on their cell phone, um, her doing an oral history. And that would be a fun one. And then um, they can upload pictures that they've taken on, on family search, so on their on their phone or whatever. So so get them more involved and, and make it something that they can do so they feel empowered. And I love that sense of oral history and taking photographs. And that's something that even today, some of the youngest kids can do, right? I mean, a two-year-old can manipulate a phone today. So you could even, you know, have them hold the phone or, you know, ask questions or something like that. So this this is kind of ageless, I think, that that kind of sense of, of just getting them involved. And that really brings me back to, like, family traditions, right? And, and sometimes it's family traditions that are just our little family or just our, you know, parents and children. And sometimes they're more extended where they're like, grandparent traditions or traditions that come from a longer heritage than that. So how do you, how do you connect in that way? Well, that's a great excuse to be able to help them to learn about their heritage, especially when you can bring in, like if you have German heritage or if you have Scandinavian heritage, bring in some of those traditions that are uh, typical for, for those cultures and share them with your children. And I think that's cool, too, because particularly one of the foundations of genealogy today is like DNA, right? And you see that all over that new technology kind of context all over on TV all the time. And that might be a fun way to do that, right? If mom and dad get their DNA and then you can say, okay, how does, you know, how does this connect and what are these different 
areas of the world and and that's a great way to learn geographic literacies and you know cultural literacies and all of that at the same time too right if you've yeah. taken a dna test then you can bring up like a map that shows graphically where uh, the ancestors came from even if you haven't taken a dna test if you have your tree in an online tree you can also see just in a graphical representation you know, what percentage German you are or Irish or whatever. And that can be really cool for the kids. And my kids are really proud to be able to say, you know, I'm 116th Icelandic or <laughs> 164th German. <laughs> and there's math and fractions, you know, yeah. which, which adds to, we just do all the literacies in family history, right? It's, it's not just, it's not just this one. You do everything in that. Have you done that too, Marissa, in your family connected to those kind of traditions and histories? Yeah, I feel like we have a little bit. We probably need to do it more. Um, but I was just thinking for Christmas, we always make um, English toffee, and it's delicious. And my, my grandfather used to make it, and then my dad made it, and now I make it every Christmas, and I'm going to talk about it with the kids. There's also music. My dad has this song that he uh, remembers learning that's in Icelandic and that his mother used to sing to the family and to the kids. And so he remembers some of that song, and he'll sing it to us. Another thing that can be really um, a great way for kids to connect is places. So taking them to places that uh, have an ancestral significance. You know, here's where your grandfather lived or going down. We, we travel down a, a, an hour south to, uh, you know, another county, Mount Pleasant, Utah, where in the 1850s one of our ancestors came from Germany and settled there, and he was a prosperous miller there. And his name is on the uh, is inscribed on a monument there, and showing them things like that, or going to the cemetery, or even just going by. You know, oh, I used to work there, or here's the old school that I went to kindergarten, and things like that. That just opens the world for our kids mm -hmm. in such a foundational way, and I love that because that's really what they need, right? Connecting to their family, connecting to the world. What's better than that? And family history is just the doorway to all of those kinds of things. Thank you both. Thanks. Thank you. I'd like to thank Joe and Marissa for this wonderful discussion about family history. We've had a great show today. First, we spoke with author Jennifer Nielsen about different genres and how to write them. After that, we had mathematics professor Eula Monroe in the studio to talk about the language of mathematics. Our last guest was librarian Heather Price, and we spoke about one of our favorite authors, Lloyd Alexander. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.